Welcome back to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast Season 2, baby. This is your host, BBT Steph, and I'm so excited to continue sharing and uncovering the many layers of the physical therapy profession so that you can be the best clinicians you want to be. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. I'm your host, DPT Steph. I'm super pumped to be back with some more juicy info because honestly, guys, that is the only way that I can describe it. On season two, we are going to be diving into everything the PT profession entails from owning your own clinic, your own business, different business practices, the good old insurance versus cash-based debates, and so much more. To get us started with season two, our first guest is Dr. Zach Baker. And why don't you, Zach, give us a little introduction and tell us about yourself. Steph, thanks for having me on. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm Zach Baker. I'm with Rehab to Perform one of the original members. So uh, Josh Funk is the owner of R2P, but him and I went to school together. So that's how we originally met each other. Um, And I've had the opportunity to be with R2P since day one, which is coming up on, gosh, close to eight years now. We opened up uh, November of 2014. So my current role within the company is a chief clinical officer and the program director for the R2P sports residency. So my day-to-day kind of fluctuates. I do uh, half my time in patient care, so I do about 20 hours of patient care a week. One day a week, I'm actively teaching and mentoring uh, within the sports residency program. And then Tuesday is the day that I get to use the the title of chief clinical officer, um, which is really just a, a way more fancy way of saying I help with the onboarding of new clinicians and staff development of our current clinicians on staff. I oversee a lot of our educational offerings. Um, So a lot of the stuff that we do through our sports residency filters through the entire company via in-services and other um, just online resources that we have. And honestly, just getting feedback and spending time with all of our staff uh, to help figure out how can we best optimize what we offer as physical therapy services, figure out what's going well, what we could improve on, and how can we best implement that within the company. So definitely wearing a lot of different hats. (laughs) Just a few. Keeps you busy, I'm sure. What would you say is like the best way that you manage all of that? Yeah, so I think honestly, the biggest way that we manage is we finally carved out formal time for it to happen. So everything that I had mentioned is stuff that we had been naturally doing throughout the course of the eight years of being a company. When we started off, it was just Josh and myself. So We were in about an 800 square foot space within a a very large indoor sports complex, but we had no front desk. We had no other supplemental staff. So we were doing the PT, we were doing the scheduling, we were doing the billing, we were doing the insurance authorizations, we were doing a little bit of everything. And then that was cool because I got to see a lot of the behind the scenes stuff of how things work in an outpatient clinic. Um, And I think more importantly, just how that filters into the flow of a, an outpatient clinic and how it may or may not influence plans of care and just implementation of plan of care. But then as we've introduced new staff, as we've added new locations, we, we currently have eight locations right now. My role went from a staff PT to what we consider a site director, which is who oversees the day-to-day operations of an individual clinic, then to a regional director where I oversaw a, a multiple clinics with site directors underneath of me to the point now where we have kind of this chief clinical officer role, which is more educational in nature. 
what I'm getting at with that is as we've grown, we found a need that in order to maintain what we offered and what we had as a very small two-person clinic, in order for that to stay relevant amongst all eight clinics, we need somebody actively spending time dedicating to making sure that's happening. So it's cool that I have the opportunity to do that. I will also offer that I'm the person responsible and accountable if things start going the other direction. <laughs> Uh, to have to figure out why they went that way and what we need to do to remedy it. So I think I'm a big believer you carve out time for what you think is valuable. And it's stuff that we've always kind of intuitively done. But the biggest thing to help me schedule my week is uh, luckily having an owner and a company that found it valuable enough for me to dedicate an entire 10 hours of, you know, in-clinic time per week exclusively to doing that. Yeah. And remind me, when did you graduate PT school? So I was exercise science undergrad at Salisbury University, was certified strength conditioning specialist, and then went directly into PT school at University of Maryland, Baltimore, graduated from 2012. So I've been out for about 10 years now. And three years ago, uh, got board certified in sports. And that's what really sparked our interest in starting the sports residency. I, I always wanted to teach uh, and I entertained being an adjunct faculty at Maryland a requirement for that was to be either OCS or SCS certified. So I went through that process and then Josh said, you know, why don't we just start a residency program? So that was uh, kind of the, the nice thing that allowed me to kind of fill the teaching bucket of what I like to do, but not completely remove myself from patient care either. I think that's what gets lost sometimes when students or new grads are inundated with one, a lot of things on social media, and then two, just they're so eager to get started in the profession that they kind of only look in one plain view, I feel like, for lack of a better word, they only look at just the clinical side of things and forget how many opportunities there are and how many different hats you can wear and responsibilities you can have. So like there's always room for growth and there's always ways to like branch out. So like you don't have to be just a staff PT forever. Absolutely. And I think my biggest recommendation and my biggest tip for students who are getting jobs, and I always say like your, your first job is exactly that. It's your first job. It doesn't need to be your dream job. It doesn't need to be your forever job. Make sure you're going into a setting or a location that meshes with your values, with your philosophies. Make sure it's convenient for where you want to live and what you want to do as a lifestyle standpoint. But then after that, like use that first job to figure out what you like and what you don't like. And no job is going to be perfect. There's always going to be compromise. But there's some stuff coming out of school that, you know, I thought I valued. And it really reiterated that I did value it when I got into the clinic. And then there was other things that I thought, you know, I would or wouldn't like. And then you get into the situation like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. And that, that could be something as simple as working, you know, five days a week versus four days a week versus PRN. And I, I honestly think a lot of, you know, really figuring out what you like or don't like, you don't know until you try it. And I think uh, get your foot in the door and then from there be open and transparent with what your goals are. And I think if you're in a place that's going to be a good long-term fit, if you can map out a reasonable plan for getting done what you want to get done, more often than not, they'll be willing to help you out with that if they can see how it's going to help the company on the back end. Yeah, I think that's an awesome point. You forget sometimes, and I, I keep blaming social media just because I feel like that's what I consume a lot now having a platform, but like I get inundated with messages from current students or the younger generations and they're like, what do you mean my first job may not be my dream job? And I love that you said that because I'll admit I thought that when I was a new grad, it's, it's so easy. You're like, okay, I want the perfect first job. I'll like be here forever. And then, you know, you get 
several years down the line, you're like, actually, you know what, this is where my values lie, but maybe this company can't do it for me anymore. Or maybe I'm missing out on XYZ and like quality of life is huge. And you don't want to get clouded judgment, all the like the things that are shiny and sparkly and things like that. So I like that you said that it's a, it's a very valid point. If you could tell yourself from 10 years ago that you are in this position that you are now, like would yourself in 2012 believe it? Like, is that a goal that you had to get to this point? Oh, I, I would say that I don't know if I would have believed it, but I, I don't know if I would have even envisioned this was the route that it would have went. I, I think I, personally, I tend to try not to like force different goals and force different things. I like to just kind of find ways for things to organically develop. And I'm a big believer if you surround yourself with the right people, you work hard and you're very open and transparent with what you want, then things tend to naturally tend to develop from that. So I don't know if I would have believed it or not, but I don't even know if I would have known what I wanted 10 years ago either. This is something that has just kind of meshed very well with what I enjoy doing. Um, it's extremely synergistic with the values that we have as a company in regards to just being an educational hub within the community, within the field, within our clinic clientele as well. And I think like our big motto is, you know, a lot of people say they do sports PT. We always said, hey, we do sports PT. We do it really well. Well, how do we validate that? Let's go get an accredited residency program where we actually board certify people to be sports PT. So um, I think that was uh, kind of a, a driving force that ended up finding a lot of synergy with what I wanted to do um, and with company initiatives as well. So tell us a little bit about the business model of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. So for those that are unfamiliar, we are in uh, the greater DC and Baltimore area. So we're primarily in Maryland. We currently have eight different locations. Our eighth location is actually the first one across state lines into Virginia. So all of our locations are you know, your outpatient sports medicine model. The clinical size ranges anywhere from 3,500 square feet to actually our Frederick facility is being expanded to 9,000 square feet. So I was completely oblivious to square footage for offices, but I would say most offices that you're finding in like a retail space, so if you were to go to like the grocery store and you see a PT clinic that's in one of those retail spaces, they're probably about like 2,000 square feet is a good average. Um, and then a lot of your outpatient clinics are like three to four. So uh, we do have pretty big size facilities. We have anywhere from 25 to 33 yards of turf space within all of our facilities. We have more of an open concept, almost like walking into training room, where you've got the, the treatment tables or the plinths along the side, a lot of open floor space. And then in the back is kind of where more of like the gym-oriented equipment is as well. So all of our layouts are the same with that. We are an insurance-based model. I would say about 90% of what we do is insurance. 10 may even be overinflating it. 5 to 10% is cash. And I bet you no one was expecting that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. And honestly, a lot of like our cash pay patients, they're either people that just aren't within our insurance network, but they want to come to our clinic or they're people that for whatever reason, they exhausted their insurance benefits or medical necessity and they're transitioning to um, self-pay. But we are predominantly uh, insurance-based clinic. We have traditionally about four PTs at each clinic. Our Frederick office is a little bit bigger, so we have more PTs at that location. But our general model is to have about four or five PTs at a clinic, uh, which gives us enough scheduling to get people onto the schedule, enough patient volume to do what we need to do from a business standpoint. But it also gives us enough base to operate where we don't feel like we're stepping on each other's toes in the clinic as well. So I can go a little bit deeper on 
No, that's it. good for now. I mean, I'm sure we'll keep on covering it as we talk. Yeah. So I made their comments. I was like, I bet people don't think that the Sundance would say that you're mostly insurance based because a lot of people associate with like that sports high level activity more with like the cash based performance based where you kind of also cross like the fine line of personal trainer slash physical therapist. And actually like, this is why I wanted to have you on too, because that's not the status quo, I guess, in like students' minds. So like, what's the driving decision for you guys to be insurance based versus any other kind of model? Absolutely. So we're in kind of a unique area. And I don't know if you're familiar with Maryland at all, but where we're at, you can be in DC or Baltimore and be in some pretty affluent areas. And then you can go not even 30 minutes outside of the city and be in a pretty rural area pretty quickly. So for us, just from a sustainability standpoint, if we were to go cash pay, it would have limited the demographic of patients that were even interested in cash pay or could even afford uh, cash pay. And, and I'll almost say like the perception of affording cash pay. You know, if you have a deductible, you may end up paying just as much with your insurance as you would with cash pay. But from where we're at, the insurance model makes more sense because if we were to go cash pay, a large majority of the community that we're in, they would either just assume that we were out of their price range. And as soon as they hear cash pay, they would just go the other way to another option, or it would just limit the amount of people that could afford cash pay at, at a rate in our area that would be consistent with what other cash pay patients are doing. So there's definitely some benefits to being in insurance. There's definitely some benefits to being cash pay. It's a lot of fun when I have students come through who are very business and entrepreneurial mindset, and they share with me all their ideas of what they want to do. And it's cool when I see them go up and open up their own practice, and it's an insurance-based model, and they're thriving. I have others that go and they open up a cash-based practice, and they're thriving. I have some that never even use their PT degree. They go online and they do online coaching and consulting and they do a bunch of really cool stuff. And I think the biggest thing that I get from it is you really have to figure out the target audience that you're trying to attract or the community that you're in, which model is going to mesh the best with giving you the most available potential patients or customers or clients, however you want to mesh that but also matches up with what you find is ideal from a work-life balance environment. Um, and I know it's funny, everybody has a different mindset of that. I know some people who they switch to cash pay because they want to go you know, a little bit lower volume, longer time with people. But then I have other people who want to go cash pay because they want to do that, but they want to work all week and they're open seven days a week and they work 10 hours a day and, and they love it and they thrive off that. And they went into the cash pay independent model because of the autonomy of being able to what they wanted to do. Um, and then you have other people that go to cash pay just because of the, the convenience of not having the administrative overhead of insurance models. Um, but then you also have the downfall of, you know, if you are seeing less people for a longer period of time, ideally, you're able to schedule all of those patients throughout the day. But where we are, we would have a hard time filling cash pay clients in the middle of the day. So then you're limited with a potentially unfilled schedule. Say one person cancels. If one person cancels who occupies an hour of your time versus a half hour of your time, that's another thing that you have to keep in mind. So 
there's pros and cons to all of it. I think it really, uh, just like we had mentioned with finding that ideal fit, you got to figure out what you value and what you like, and you can be successful and live a very uh, rewarding and comfortable lifestyle doing either way. So it's whatever you think matches up the best with what you want. Yeah, I think that's a great point to make because there's so many people now that push cash pay, but without the actual context or reasoning behind it. So students or even new grads or maybe clinicians who are feeling burnt out, they always think like, oh, well, that's the only and best option. But then everything that you mentioned is like not really ever thought about. So I think that's an, a solid point to make. How is your scheduling done? Because obviously a lot of people associate with more and more PT mills and all that stuff with insurance-based care. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like if you're working with the population that you are, you're probably not being run like a mill. Yeah. And that's where I'll say sometimes like state-by-state regulations may dictate that as well. So in the state of Maryland, uh, from an insurance standpoint, you can see up to three patients an hour is really kind of how the scheduling fits. So you will have some companies, not ours, who will overschedule beyond three patients with the anticipation of somebody canceling and almost like how you overbook a flight and you just know something's going to happen, but they still want to have a full flight. So in Maryland, we can see up to three patients an hour, but the way that we schedule at our company is we do hour-long evaluations, and then we communicate to the patient that follow-up visits are 30 minutes of direct one-on-one time with their uh, PT but they can expect to be in the clinic for anywhere from 45 to 60 minutes. So typically the way that I like to describe it is we are allocating that 30 minutes of time with them. I would look at it as like competency versus capacity-based activities. So things that would fall under that competency, that's you know new motor skill acquisition or learning new activities or developing a new home exercise program introducing new concepts or new drills or exercises to them. That's the stuff that you're going to dedicate your 30 minutes of time with them. Or maybe you're doing reassessments or you have them on a table doing some sort of hands-on work with them. Those would fall under the things that would be more of that direct one-on-one time with them. There's still other meaningful uses of their time that needs to take place, but you don't necessarily need to be right beside them as they're doing that. So that's the things that, I, that would fall under like more of the capacity base. So if you take some of our higher end or later stage rehab clients, maybe I have a post-op ACL that's four, five, six months out. I'm spending my half hour of time with them doing multi-directional work on the turf, coaching, cueing, introducing new ways for them to decelerate, go in and out of cuts. Maybe we're introducing something they're a little bit fearful of and we got to fight through some fear avoidance strategies. That's how I'm going to allocate my time with them. Then when my next patient comes in the door a half hour later, it doesn't mean that you know the, my ACL patient's just leaving. They still have more things to do. But this is probably where they're moving on to more of their strength training part of the session. And all of the stuff that they're doing in their strength training routine, that was previous stuff that I did them in the preceding weeks and months as part of our direct 30 minutes of one-on-one time. So it's stuff that I know they're comfortable with. I know that they're skilled and safe doing it. I can distantly supervise it from the other side of the room. And that's the beauty of having an open clinic like we do. But really for them, it's just a matter of getting in the reps, getting in the volume and just getting that training stimulus. So I always look at it as like the 30 minutes of time we spend with them. That's the stuff that's more of like your less safe to fail activities, things that you need to be there with them. 
Whereas the things that they're doing at the end of the session are things that are your, your lower risk, higher intensity, but lower complexity type tasks that just need to get done. So it's like the equivalent of, do I need to watch somebody do 30 heel slides with a, with a towel? No, but does it need to get done to get back range of motion? Probably. So that would be something where, you know, we'd introduce it early, maybe day one post-op, and then that's stuff that's understood that needs to be done, but maybe just at a, a different section of the session. My thought process while you're explaining this, what, well, I think it's a great concept, I do, but my thought process is because I, I've heard some people say like, well, why do things in a clinic if the patient can do it at home? Like what would be, I'm just curious, like what your response to something like that would be. Because like if they know how to do heel slides, like your example said, and why would you have them do it distantly supervised if they can just do it at home? So I'll answer that in two different ways. And I'll answer it playing like devil's advocate to kind of the social media monsters that say, oh, we need to empower <laughs> patients. We need to get them out of the clinic. We shouldn't be abusing insurance. And I, I'm not advocating for doing any of that. But my thought process to that is like, from a health and fitness standpoint, we know that we should eat well. We know that we should exercise. If it was that simple, Steph, I could just email you a diet plan and say, hey, just follow it. Like you have the food in your fridge, but no, like you would still meet with somebody. You need part of its accountability. And then the other part of it too, though, is just because they know how to do it or they've been exposed to it doesn't mean that you are no longer modifying the activity. It's no different where I may teach somebody day one how to do something, an easy low back pain. Somebody comes in and there's a low hanging fruit for a stretch or a mobility drill that they can do. Cool. I'm going to teach them this. It's a very simple drill. But guess what happens when they come back for the second session? It looks nothing like the way that I told them to do it. So, so I think um, there is a misconception. of I think part of it is just the accountability and having them know that they're being watched, know that they're having stuff recorded and monitored. But I do think the more important part is that you're not abandoning the patient and that it does require the distant supervision where you don't need to be on top of them because you're afraid of them having a catastrophic event where they're going to re-tear their ACL or rupture their Achilles if they're doing it wrong. But it doesn't mean that you're still not walking over and giving them a little tip at the end of the set like, hey, I told you to squat and you're doing more of a hip hinge. So when you're squatting, hey, next time just go sideways to the mirror, watch your knees, see if they're tracking forward are we getting that anterior tibial translation and actually squatting with the vertical descent or is this more of a hinging strategy that we're doing so i am a big believer though stuff that should be done at home or can be done at home i want to fight for every way to make that happen i'm a father of three so i've got an eight a six and a two-year-old and if i were to personally go to pt and just have to regurgitate stuff that i knew i could do at home that didn't require anything I'd probably just tell them like, hey, I'm, I'm good. I can do this at home. So I think the better answer to your original question is like, yeah, if it is really simple and they can just do it at home, by all means, do it at home. And that stuff that we are doing from distant supervision, it still needs to be something that requires medical supervision. Yeah. And it needs to be something that requires PT interaction or else it's no longer an insurance-based model. It becomes a glorified wellness routine. So um, I think that's where you need to be very intentional with what you are giving them, but also how are you tracking it and measuring it? Because that is the one thing with an insurance-based model. If you can no longer dictate a need for that supervision, then that's where I'm just tapping out and saying like, hey, you're good from a rehab standpoint. You could still get in better shape, but I can't run that through your insurance. 
but I've got a great strength and conditioning buddy down the road that I think is a good fit for you. I think you should get in touch with them or I can write your home program to get to finish this out as well. Yeah. And I think everything that you said, it was like, that was like the perfect explanation because it really weighs out all of the different variables that are kind of intertwined into something like that, where it's okay. Well, if it's too simple, obviously like, let's be realistic. I always say like being in the acute care setting, I always have to justify it as skilled therapy. Like, yeah. If someone could just walk to the bathroom, like that's not skilled, I don't need to do it. So it's the same concept, I feel like in your setting as well, where, okay, if you're going to be doing distant supervision, but it's still something that requires maybe some cues or some correction or something, it's not just complete, like leaving them alone in their corner and then they're off on their own and you're on the other side of the gym. Yeah. And I think like, I love that example that you gave. That was something that I struggled with in school when I was doing my different clinical rotations in the ICU or at an inpatient rehab was as a student, I always had a very tough time of trying to communicate to the patient and or family members or other people in the room, how what I was doing was different or required me to be there. And I always knew it in my head that I needed to be there, what was being done, but I always struggled as a student trying to articulate that. And it's uh, especially in your environment where there can be a lot of overlap between you know getting somebody in and out of bed or into a chair where they may see other professions or providers within the hospital doing that whether it's one of the nurses or one of the the techs that are coming in and out but there's a difference between getting to point a and point b and getting from point a to point b intentionally and with some sort of underlying uh concept leading that so yeah exactly where i get back into the part of our sessions where patients are doing more of that like capacity workout type stuff you hit the nail on the head. Like if it's so simple, then they probably shouldn't be doing it. And the, the stuff that we're giving people on the back end, if it's so simple that they could be doing it at home, then they should be. But if it's something from a movement standpoint that they should be doing in the clinic, what really justifies the need to be in the clinic doing it is the intensity level at which it's prescribed. And I think that's where the big disconnect is between where I've had people that I've discharged too early was I gave them all the right stuff to do at home or in my head I did, and they were getting good results from it. But the biggest things that I saw was either a reluctance to push themselves at home to the same level that they would if they knew a medical provider was watching them, or they just an awareness of how much or how little to push themselves. Yeah. And I feel like that's one of those things that only comes with experience and comes with time. And, you know, I, I feel like I was the same way when I was a student and even, you know, a little bit as a new grad, you kind of get into a routine and you become like a robot, especially if this could be in any setting where, you know, you give pelvic tilts to every low back patient or you give, you know, a walker to every acute care patient and you forget the actual clinical reasoning. And I feel like as the clinical reasoning or decision making starts to kind of improve or you get more confident in that, that's when you kind of can really decipher the situations of, okay, where's the autonomy for the patient side of things? What do they actually need? Why should they still keep coming to me? Why should I still be working with them? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. One of the big things that we see in our clinic is I deal with a lot of post-operative patients and a hesitancy early post-op is like, when are they okay to walk? Or when are they okay to start doing X, Y, and Z without you giving them a crutch or taking their brace off or being right next to them? And for me, I... I don't know. I don't have a great answer for that. But after seeing like four or 500 ACL patients, it's pattern recognition. And I have a good idea of who's going to tolerate weight bearing well and independence with weight bearing well. 
And it can be hard to quantify that, but that comes from experience. And it's no different. If I walked into a hospital right now and tried to get somebody out of bed and walk them, I'd probably walk them 25 feet and rush them right back to the bed. And then you'd come in and be like, oh, we could do 2,000 feet and run laps around this place. But I don't have those reps. I don't have that sample size. I don't know what's a, a normal respiratory response or some of the visual facial expressions. I don't know or I don't have the comfort level with how much to push or not to push. So I'm going to be uber conservative and probably that would be with an ACL. I'd be like, um, okay, we're just barely going to move your leg here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm the person that goes into the hospital room and they're like, Oh, Zach did passive range of motion with this person. And then you go in with them and have them walking around with a vent. So exactly. It's it. But again, it's like one of those things, like you said, once you get your reps in, you learn what to pick up on and, you, you nailed it with that. I want to switch gears a little bit because of what we were talking more so in the beginning of our chat, but a lot of students, I feel like always ask and say, well, how do I know that I want to maybe open my own place or be a clinical director or be in any of those roles when school does not teach you any of those skills? So what skills have you found to be the most useful or like that you've kind of learned or picked up on as time goes on? Yeah, so I think going from the decision between being either like a staff physical therapist or having some sort of administrative role or leadership role within a company, however that's defined. In our company, it's a site director or one of the more corporate roles. For me, from a personality standpoint, I have to be doing something and I have to be, I always want to do something new. I always want to do something different. So I have the luxury of being at a company that was kind of in the startup phase where there was always something new happening. And I don't mind failing. I don't mind trying something and falling on my face and then trying to put it back together and, and figure out how to best do it. So um, for me, personality-wise, it meshed very well with where we were as an organization and what we were trying to do. And luckily, Josh trusts me enough to be able to take on tasks independently, figure out what kind of that minimal viable product is to get out and then actively refine it as we go. So I would say what you really need to do if you're trying to figure out, do I want to open my own practice or I want to take a leadership role is, do you actually want to? And I've had friends that I've graduated with that have taken on some leadership roles. I had one buddy that uh, went into a partnership with a company and he opened up his own clinic. He did it for like a year and then he ended up selling his portion back to the company and just said, I hated it. Like, I liked enjoying treating patients I didn't like marketing. I didn't like dealing with customer service or, or relations issues. I didn't like dealing with the overhead. I didn't like the stress of having to worry about making payroll for other staff members. So I, I think that's a, a big consideration. And there's nothing wrong with going in, clocking in, doing a great job at work, clocking out, and never thinking about work again until you go back into work the next day. And I think that's something... Yeah. I want to like pause right there. If you're listening to this and need to go back and hear that again, you should like rewind 10 seconds and listen to it because there's so much pressure, especially with like the low pay and stuff that some models produce that everyone's like, oh, I have to climb the ladder or I have to be, you don't have to do anything. There's nothing wrong with not being in any of those positions. Absolutely. And I think that's something when we bring people on and when we're looking for new staff, we're extremely transparent with what we're looking for. Hey, we're looking for a staff PT. These are the responsibilities of a staff PT. And we have some people that say, well, I don't want to be a staff PT. I was a site director somewhere else. Like, I want to be in those decisions. And it's not even a, 
an ego thing. It's just a personality thing. Like they want to have their, their hand in the pot. They want to be actively involved in those decisions. And then we have other people, they interview for a job and we tell them what the roles and responsibilities and commitments are. And they say, hey, you know what? I kind of like clocking out at five o'clock and, you know, going and playing in my rec league or going on traveling and doing whatever. And it, it just comes down to whatever you're looking for. So I think that's another recommendation that I would have when people are going through that job search is one, make sure you're extremely clear about whatever the requirements are of the job that you should come in. So we are very slow to hire at our company because we don't ever want to bring somebody in where they feel like they're blindsided by what was expected of them or what was asked of them. Um, and because we want to make sure that whoever we're bringing in, it's a perfect match for them and they're actually happy because if they're not happy, it's going to, it's going to have a, a downward spiral from there. So I think just encouraging people to be very, open and transparent during the application process of what they're looking for. It's the same thing I do with residencies. I tell people, this is exactly what our residency offers. This is exactly what it does not offer, but these other residencies do. So if you're looking for these types of experiences, you may be better suited for this type of setting. If you're looking for a different set of experiences, this is where we really thrive. And I think that's something where if you're asking those questions and you're not getting the answers to them during the application process, that's probably a little bit of a red flag, if not a yellow flag at least. And then I would also encourage them, spend a day in the clinic. And that's where whenever we have people come in, I try to invite them in at like the most chaotic <laughs> time where it's like, all right, we have some PTs going off, some PTs coming in, front desk is transitioning, it's evening time, it's after school, and really just let them know like, hey, worst case scenario, this is what you're going to walk into. Does this seem overwhelming? Does this seem right up your alley? And I think doing that is a really good way to get a um, indication of if you're a good fit for the company and if they're a good fit for you as well. It's a two-way street. Right. And it definitely is a two-way street because I, and I always tell students too, like you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And some people don't like when I say that because they're like, what do you mean? They're going to ask so many questions in an interview. And I'm like, but if you want them in as an employee, you don't know, like based off your questions, if they're going to mesh well. So they might have better questions and see, try to like figure out what it is that they actually want and what their values are. You know, there's some clinics that don't allow their potential staff to come in and like stay for a few hours or, you know, watch or whatever. So I, I feel like that's a red flag in itself. So I like that you guys do that, which is huge, especially when it's in the most chaotic time. Yeah. If anybody listening is looking for a good book recommendation on that, I would highly recommend The Culture Code is an awesome book to read. Um, and it talks about uh, just building a team culture in a variety of settings. So it talks about in the military, it talks about in big corporate world like Amazon and Google on sports teams. And it's a phenomenal book. It's, it's a required reading for our residency actually. And that's, uh, we always talk about, you know, getting the right people on the bus and then making sure we find the right seats for them on the bus where they can thrive and be synergistic with other members of the team. Yeah, I just wrote that down because I'm gonna check that book out. I love book recommendations like that that are not just like fiction novels when it's something yeah. like more like skill or goal oriented. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll pick that book up. Otherwise, reading is far gone for me. I've got an idea that I can only fit so much information in my head. So I tend to stay away from fiction because I'm not the smartest person out there. So if I start filling it with some some fiction, then it's gonna not leave enough room for the other stuff. 
feel that on a, at a deep level. There's so much information that I'm like constantly inundated with. Like you were saying earlier that I don't know how you phrase it, but essentially like you can't sit still, like you always have to be doing something. And I was like, yep, that's, that's me. Always have to be doing something. Last question and last thoughts from you about students who want to go into maybe sports performance or sports residency or, you know, maybe didn't get that experience, whether it was pre-PT or as a PT student, how should they kind of scope out those things? Yeah, so I think with the sports residency, and luckily there's more and more sports residencies popping up, so just the prevalence of them is getting higher. When I came out of school, there was not a lot of them, and I, I was interested in doing one coming right out of school. I ended up actually doing the independent study route about six or seven years out of school. The big ones when I came out of school were Delaware, Pitt, and USC, and my uh, wife and I, we were engaged at the time, and just none of those really made sense. She's a, a nurse in Baltimore, so none of that really made sense to uh, relocate just with where we were with our lives and what we wanted to do. But I would say with the residencies, start getting in contact with programs in PT school and just reach out to them. I had no clue what a sports residency even entailed in PT school. I just thought it sounded really cool. So I would encourage people, my experiences now that we have ours up and running is all of the program directors I've interacted with are extremely receptive and open to students who are interested in them. And a common theme that I've found is that every program director is only interested in getting applicants who are a phenomenal fit for their program. So they love to have conversations with people even prior to the application process to help triage them in the right direction of what programs may be the best fit for that. Meaning some residencies take place at a private practice like ours, whereas others are affiliated directly with a university or with a PT program. And they both have their own little nuances and pros and cons. So I think just being able to get in touch with those different programs in PT school and learning about what they all teach towards the same curriculum, but some of the experiences and the setup are a little bit different. And I think that'll help you kind of pick and choose where I've had some phenomenal people who have applied and I said, you know what, you are great. But with your background and your experiences, I don't think what we offer from an experience standpoint is going to exceed what you could get at another place where you haven't had that experience yet. Or I've had some other students who have been students of ours in the past have, were really interested in our sports residency program. And I said, look, you've spent three months with us in an outpatient clinical rotation. Do you really want to spend another additional year with us? Or would it be more beneficial to get exposure to another private practice setting or a university setting or something along those lines. And some people are dead set on maintaining and applying with us where the others say, oh, you know what? I never really thought about that. So reach out early and often. I think you'll be surprised at just how receptive a lot of the different programs are to entertain your emails and your phone calls. If anybody listening to this wants to reach out to me, I'm more than happy to field that formally through email, informally through social media, just whatever entails. Um, in regards to the sports performance route, the biggest limitation I've seen, we have contracts with almost every PT school in the country, and all of them have different levels as to how much sports interaction they get. So there's some schools that have contracts with like 15 different really, really good sports PT clinics. And then there's others that don't have any, and it's kind of on the students to try to find those. So I would encourage them if you're unable to get one through a formal clinical rotation, 
we entertain people just on a non-clinical internship standpoint as well, where people have come over the summer or for weekends. One of our uh, current PTs in Columbia, uh, Caleb Fatsinger, he was one of like our original five staff members. He was doing an internship at Exos, and that was his one sports PT rotation that he could do. So he never got a chance to work with us in PT school, uh, but he came in during one of his class times and would come in on Saturday mornings and hang out with Jared Boyd at our Frederick location. So, and that was really our first interaction with us. Then he got hired by us, and now he's helped us uh, really since our first clinic, see us all the way through uh, the opening of Columbia. So lots of different routes to get to exposure. I think the biggest thing is just just reach out to people. Yeah, I think that's huge. And obviously with social media and everything, it's propelled that. Where can people find you if they have questions or want to contact you? Absolutely. So if they go through email, drbaker at rehab2perform.com. So that's drbaker at rehab2perform.com. It's probably the easiest way if you're going via email. And then other than that, you can just send me a message on Instagram, uh, zdbaker30. Just shoot me a message on there. And I'm pretty responsive on there as well. And that, that's almost easier than email at times as well. Awesome. You guys know where to find him if you have any questions. Thank you for coming on and we'll chat soon. Cool. Steph, I appreciate you taking the time and the uh, invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.